0: In 1914, Ernest Shackleton made plans to set sail from England to Antarctica. He needed a crew for this perilous journey, and so he created this advertisement. How do you think he would have marketed this journey? Here's what the advertisement said. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. It is said that within the first week of this ad going up, over 500 people applied for the job. 500 people. Why? Why on earth would anyone sign up for something that at its very best might get you home a broken person called a hero? Well, I think for all of us, with deep within, there's, there's this sense of wanting um, something more out of life than just being comfortable and living in the suburbs and making enough money to in our, entertain ourselves to death. I think for all of us, there, there's a sense that we are alive for something more. Most people, if they're not drawn to some kind of adventure, at least are drawn to books and films or stories about people who are larger than life. There's an unsettled feeling but people often describe about settling for the quiet life where we just get by. People are looking for ways to engage in life so that they have legacy and so that they make a difference in the world. People love a challenge worth investing in, right? Unfortunately, few people automatically associate Jesus and the church with a life that's challenging or with a life that actually makes a difference. I think it's a horrible tragedy and it reflects, if anything, some poor teaching about the great news that we have. Friends, that's why I'm so excited about this series that we're in on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is not only one of the most challenging lifestyles you're ever going to encounter, it is something that if you engage in, living the Sermon on the Mount life, you will necessarily be a world changer. It may give you adventures... In foreign lands, it may give you adventure in a suburban context or right here in this neighborhood. But no matter where you are, living a Sermon on the Mount life will not only change you, but it will change the people around you. It will make a difference. The life Jesus calls us to is the life He makes available to us. The life Jesus calls us to is the life Jesus makes available to us. So what I mean by that is that Jesus' call is, first of all, full of grace, actually from start to finish. In the Beatitudes, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we've been learning that, that Jesus invites all people to participate in the good life, regardless of status or gender or race, All one needs to get started on this incredible adventure is poverty of spirit. To recognize that we desperately need God's help to live this kingdom life. I think we're all qualified for that. As we trust in Jesus and surrender our agendas to Him, He develops Sermon on the Mount character in us. Jesus tells us in no uncertain terms that He's not here to start a new religion. He's not here to abolish the law or the prophets. He's here to fulfill them. And so instead of giving us new laws, Jesus recaptures in the Sermon on the Mount the original intent of God's heart behind those laws. Jesus is about getting our hearts right, not just our behaviors. So he calls us to have more of a life than merely not murdering. I mean, it's a good thing not to murder anyone, but Jesus calls us to live lives of reconciliation. We're making sure you've done all you can do to be right with somebody or making sure you've done all you can do to forgive somebody is just as important as worship. In fact, you could argue it is a form of worship. Jesus gives us a vision for a world where anger and bitterness no longer control us. Now just think, that's the first teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. The first teaching of that meaty part. If we all live lives of reconciliation, think how the world would already be radically transformed. Jesus goes on to give us a vision for a world where our sexuality is to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage. A world where we might find freedom from the dehumanizing effects of sexual bondage. And since we've already been talking about these light subjects of anger and sex, well, we, why stop now? This evening we're going to hear what Jesus has to say about divorce. Now, I know that this is a very sensitive subject... There are some here who have been divorced and remarried and will wonder, what is he going to say about it? What is he going to think? Some of you have grown up in homes of divorce, and so this is just going to strike emotional chords with you. Some will be struggling in your marriages right now and considering perhaps a divorce. All of us, at least, know someone close to us probably who has experienced divorce or, or grown up in a home of divorce. So here's my commitment to us as a congregation, this is me included. I'm gonna do my best to help us hear Jesus in his setting, in his words, and to sensitively yet accurately try to get at what it means for us. That's the tall order. And here's the actual text. Jesus is teaching about anger and lust. And he says, it was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who leaves his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Would you pray with me, a little bit for me? Jesus, we thank you. For this incredible vision of a new life. This incredible vision that is good news for new life. And we confess that this teaching is difficult. It's mind-blowing. Your own disciples said, who should get married then? Lord, help us to hear you today, not me not our best ideas or our own agendas in our hearts, I pray, Lord, that we would all be open this evening and that You would speak to us by the power of Your Spirit, through Your Word. May we hear the challenge of Your Word and the grace of Your heart. Amen. It was said... Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you... I know, just a few minutes ago I told you that Jesus wasn't starting something new, and he wasn't abolishing the law and the prophets, but here he starts out with this different thing. He says, but I say to you, what's this about? Well, I think Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter. He's getting to the ethic... Behind the law. Let's take a step back for a moment to do a very brief overview of marriage as it was understood in Jesus' culture. And to do that, we should go all the way back to the beginning, to creation. In Genesis 1, and 27, we learn that God created humans, male and female. And He created them in God's image, male and female. So whoever you are ever talking to or sitting next to or involved with, They are made in God's image. Then in Genesis 2 we read, The Lord God said, It is not good for the human, the Adam, literally the earth man, to be alone. So I will make a helper suitable for him. So God knows our need, not only for relationship with him, but for relationships with people like us. Like the animals weren't cutting it for for Adam, so he creates woman. (coughs) Excuse me. And the Hebrew word for helper here, for this helper that God creates, is Ezer. Remember this maybe from last fall. Uh, some translate Ezer as helper. In fact, my Bible says that. But in our culture, I think helper is kind of a weak word because it sounds like um, kind of the assistant to the boss or, um, you know, someone less than the main guy. Uh, but in Hebrew, Ezer means more of a partner. More of a a colleague. Ezer is a strong word. In fact, in the Psalms where it talks about God's coming alongside and delivering people, even with military strength, you know what God is called. He's called an ezer. So if God's called, that's a pretty strong word. So man and woman are to be partners, and their jobs as as image bearers are, are, is to reflect God's good character to creation by loving one another and being good caretakers of the garden world that God created. It's pretty pretty good gig, okay? And of course, through rebellion and sin, there's this wedge lodged between us and God, and between us and each other, and it even affects, of course, the marriage relationship. So years go by, and cultures develop in the ancient Near East, right? And most of the cultures in the ancient Near East became patriarchal, which means that the guy is in charge of family, he's in charge of the politics, he's in charge of the economy. Basically, it's, it's, it's a man's world. That's what happens, okay? So this descriptive, it's not prescriptive, okay? So this is how the cultures developed in the ancient Near East, It was a hard environment for women because they had almost no power. Marriages were arranged at a very early age. And all over uh, the ancient Near East, we found texts that describe what these marriages were like. Who wants to get married? You two are getting married. Come up here. Come up here. And then I need... um, Let's see, Nancy's not up here? Okay, Frank, would you be the dad? Okay, you be the father of the bride, and Suzanne, you too. You can no, you don't want to. That's it. okay. Katie, you be the no, you're not old enough. You just come up. You're a you're a widower. Okay, so so you you're the father of the bride. You stand here, and um, here you go, Christina. This is heavy, so just. Well, that lift your legs. And then, Ben, come over here, and let's see. We've got livestock for you. So we've got a sheep and uh, a Hello Kitty and a Curious George. These, what I could find, but pretend like, ah, they're, okay. And then we need parents for Ben. Anyone want to be Ben's parents? Come on up. Uh, okay. The Nelsons are coming up, and so, uh, let's see here. and And then we need... Here we go. So this is a dinner table, see? And um, now I know that, like if I did your wedding, uh, we we would talk a lot about marriage being a covenant, right? And a covenant is where you keep up your end, uh, even if your partner fails and all this stuff, because of Jesus, right? Well, this is before Jesus' teaching and His influence and before His Spirit. So I I don't know if this is going to blow your mind or not, but all the texts that we have from the ancient Near East show that marriages were actually contracts. They are contractual. So Ben might be 16, and Christina might be 13 or 14, so they're a little... And and they might not have hardly met each other before. And uh, they're going to they're gonna get to love each other later, but it's going to be a growth thing. And so what's really going on here is you think this is their family, right? But no, this is Christina's family. Because in this culture, Frank is the paterfamilias, which means he's in charge. He's the head guy. And every living person in the Roman Empire, or even in, the, in Babylon in these days, they had to pay tribute tax. And let's say you uh, you can't afford that tax. The paterfamilias is going to pay your tax. But you know what you're going to do? If you're his slave, you're going to be loyal to Papa Frank. And if you are the local merchant, you're going to be loyal to Papa Frank. And maybe you're a distant kinfolk, you're going to be loyal to Papa Frank. So, all this, so what we're doing here is in that you're the paterfamilias of this side, right? And you actually have more people, so you're rich. And, and what, by joining these two together in a contract, you're actually joining loyalties of this whole family. See how powerful that is? It's not just, I'm in love, and I, it's not about feelings necessarily. Okay, that comes later. So what we're going to do is we're going to have this contract, and it's going to say that that Ben is going to be good to Christina. He's going to uh, provide materially for her. He's going to he's going to give it in bed. He's going to give it up. Okay, that's actually in the contract. You have to have conjugal relationships on a regular basis. Okay, so I'm sure you can handle that. And then um, <clears throat> and then you you've got to protect her honor. Okay, you cannot shame her in public. You've got to step up if some dude comes up. All right, so you've got to protect. And, and if you break that contract, see, what's going to happen is you give Frank those animals. Bye. Okay, and then, Christine, we're going to give this piggy bank to over here. So this is a dowry. That's, that's a dowry, and this is a bride price. All right. Now, what happens is, and Christina, you've got to you've got a thing on the contract too, so you've got to um, be good to Ben in all those same ways, except you don't have to fight women or anything like that. If, but so okay. So if you neglect one another or commit adultery, or then this contract is broken, and what can happen is, uh, if, if Ben does something bad, you get to keep those, and you get the dowry back, and vice versa. So these are actually like think of it as collateral. And this is kind of how marriages were in the ancient Near East. Now, it, we know it gets much more romantic after they're actually wed. Here's another cool custom. Ben doesn't have to work for a year. He doesn't have to go in the army for a year, even if there's a war going on. And guess who gets to pay for that year? You guys. And you guys get to just learn to love each other for a whole year, maybe start a family or something. So, I mean, I, there's some cool things about it, too. And we know from songs of Solomon and things like that, like, there's, there's a lot of romance going on. That's X-rated, but... Uh, that's not the point. So think contract. Think So there's contract. You can put those things down and give them a hand. Thank you. marriages were contracts and there were very clear stipulations on how you stay married and if you didn't fulfill your end of the agreement you could have a divorce now what happens is in a patriarchal society um, w- there's some weird customs with women right? so like, let's say there was a valid divorce let's say Ben did something wrong it wasn't Christina's fault and th- they get a divorce it, unfortunately what happens is Ben can just go off and remarry and Christina is looked down upon. By law, she's supposed to be able to remarry. She's supposed to be able to get this money. But she is, she's blackmarked. She's looked at as a second-class citizen. So even if she was able to remarry, she'd probably be treated very poorly. Um, and so that, that's the reality of what was going on in the ancient Near East. So what happened is God gave this incredible law. What I, what I find so interesting about this study is that Lots of ancient Near Eastern religions had marriage contracts. In fact, the Israelite marriage contracts look almost exactly the same as the Babylonian ones and things like that. But there's a twist. God intervened, and he gave Moses this special law about a certificate of divorce. No other cultures had the certificate of the divorce. And so what that would do was the woman would have this divorce, and it says, I am free and clear to remarry. And it was her card to actually have a hope at some kind of positive life if a divorce was to occur. The papers about divorce were a concession that God made because people are mean to each other. I mean, that's, that's the bluntness of it. It's not His plan, but it's a concession that He made as a grace to women, really. Now, by the time we get to the first century, so now we're hundreds and hundreds of years later, uh, when Jesus gives his Sermon on the Mount, the marriage situation was actually worse. There were two major schools of thought. There's the, the thought of uh, uh, Rabbi Shammai, who taught that, he basically taught what I just did in front of you, that you, know, you could divorce if there was, uh, if you break these laws. They're in Exodus 21, by the way, these neglect laws. Uh, if you break these laws, and only if you break these, uh, the marriage contract, then you could divorce. Hillel is this other rabbi, and he's Mr. Progressive, and he says, No, 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 I think that you can divorce for any reason. And so Hillel was teaching that if your wife gets too old, you can divorce her. If she burns your dinner, you can divorce her. If she didn't do the chores, you can divorce her. Any cause means any cause, and there's records of these divorces happening for any cause. Now, you go to a court, and there's different lawyers there, and there's the Shammai lawyers, who might be really good on like tax evasion or something like that, but, and then there's Hellel, but... Now, you're a guy in a patriarchal society, which lawyer are you going to go to? You're going to go to the Hillel one, right? So that was the dominant popular way uh, that people conceived of marriage, was this Hillelite divorce for any cause. Enter Jesus, enter good news, enter the call to a challenging, changed life. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's challenging stuff. I know that the Sermon on the Mount, if you've been around church a little bit, you've heard it over and over again. Did you hear what he just said? That is a challenging statement. We're going to need help interpreting this passage by looking at what Jesus has to say in other divorce passages too. In most other places, for example, Matthew 19, Jesus is responding to a question by the Pharisees. Their question is, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? The Pharisees want to know, hey, where does this Jesus guy stand on the debate between Shammai and Hillel? All right, Where does he stand on this? The question is not whether divorce is legal in God's eyes. You need to see that. Of course it is legal. It says so in the law. The question is, is it legal for any reason? Is it legal because we fell out of love or my spouse annoys me? Oh, I found someone who fulfills me better. To this question, Jesus is firmly saying no. Those are not valid reasons. Here Jesus says divorce is not valid, except for the reason of unchastity, which is kind of an unfortunate translation. The Greek word behind that unchastity word is porneo. Of course, where you get pornography, it has sexual connotations. Now, Last time we got together, we talked about lust, and how lust, or or looking with the intent of lusting after someone else, is the same as adultery. Adultery is the Greek word moikio, okay? It very specifically means adultery. Moikio. Porneo includes moikio, so it includes adultery, but it's much more broad. Okay? And we learned in that lust lesson a couple weeks ago that you can actually be adulterous in your heart in a lot of different ways besides just having physical intercourse with somebody besides your spouse. Just look at this guy. I feel bad for him, but his name's Weiner. You know, the politician guy who's been sexting pictures of himself between six other women who aren't his wife. And if you're kind of out of the technological age, sexting means texting about. Explicit things. So he's taking pictures of himself, he's writing uh, provocative statements, and and kind of living this fantasy life with someone else. That's an example of porneo. Think of how that guy's wife must feel, how her vulnerability is stomped on. It sounds funny uh, when you read it on the headlines or when we joke about it over a beer or something like that, but it is not funny for everyone who's going through it. This is the... the, We're getting to the heart of the matter now, the heart of Jesus' message. The Pharisees, and I think if we're honest, even you and I, are so obsessed with how we can get away with the most that we can. How can I get out of this relationship? How can I justify my divorce? How little do I have to do before it's her fault or his fault? So we often get caught up in the laws. We get so caught up in the laws that we fail to see what the laws are actually there to protect. The laws are a necessary thing, Jesus says, only because we have hard hearts. God created man and woman. He created marriage for a lifelong partnership. He created marriage to reflect His love. The ethic is a call to love and commitment to one another. The point isn't what constitutes a valid divorce, but how do we best love one another? When I was writing this message, I was thinking about um, What was I thinking? I was thinking, (laughs) I wrote this statement, Divorce destroys. Divorce destroys. But as I kept thinking through that statement, I don't think that that's necessarily true. The truth is, hard hearts destroy, and unforgiveness destroys, and anger destroys, and sexualized fantasy outside of marriage destroys, and those are the things that lead to divorce. Those are the things that destroy. They destroy our ability to trust. They hinder our ability to experience true intimacy. And for children, the effects are absolutely devastating. I remember when uh, Corey and I were first dating. Uh, We had those early first dating fights. Maybe you guys never had those. We had some pretty good fights. And, um, you know, sometimes I would just storm out. I I need some air, you know, so I'd, I'd leave. And later as we, you know, years went on and we more intimate with each other and our talking we found out that see I came from a family with my parents aren't divorced Uh, sometimes I wish they had but no I'm glad they're together Um, and and so for me that didn't even register that my walking out or getting some air I, I was always coming back But but Corey grew up, um, her parents divorced when she was seven. And by the way, they are wonderful people, both awesome grandparents. We love them very much. But just the the reality is they divorced when she was seven. And uh, so for her, uh, every time I would leave or, or we would get angry at each other, there was always this doubt that he may not come back. And maybe you've experienced that in your life or are with someone who has experienced that in their life. Think about what that means if we can't trust one another, if we can't conceive of that trust. And here I'm preaching every week that salvation comes through trust in Jesus, trust in a Father. How hard is that? Very difficult. Jesus made us and knows us. And wants the best for us. He wants us to live lives of love to God and neighbor. He wants us to have lasting, loving, committed relationships. And to get his point across, he speaks very strongly. Whoever divorces his wife for any reason makes her commit adultery, even if she has the certificate of divorce. Because in God's eyes, their divorce isn't valid who marries a divorced woman for any reason commits adultery because that any cause divorce is not valid in God's eyes it's, it's not in his original plan and we need to sit just for a minute with the severity of those words we need to, to sit with the gravity of what Jesus is saying know that God hates our hard heartedness I think we need to experience the uncomfortable nature of Jesus' teaching and recognize that we are poor in spirit and we desperately need Him. Now, this is good news, remember? So we need to walk in this tension of experiencing the gravity of what Jesus is saying and hearing the gospel in it as well. We have to recognize that in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses strong language, we call it hyperbole, over and over again. Do we actually take people to court because they're angry with their brother? I'd probably be rotting in prison if that were true. Okay? Do we actually pluck out our eyes and cut off our hands if we lust? You'd have one stumpy pastor. I've seen this passage on divorce misused and abused in horrific ways. I've seen women endure years of physical and emotional abuse because their pastors told them it was against God's plan to get a divorce from their abusive husband. I've heard of children enduring sexual abuse because Jesus didn't add that as an exception clause. And what about the other extreme? What about those who have experienced a biblically invalid divorce and are now remarried? What do we do? Are you supposed to get divorced again? It's ridiculous, right? As much as Jesus' teaching seems to be about divorce, it's really about commitment. We, I'm guilty of this too, focus so much on the negative. In fact, if you were to break this sermon down, probably 80% of it is on On the divorce passage, because that's where we wrestle with. I don't think it's really about what divorces are legal and not legal. I think it's really about the positive, commitment, and loving one another. The ethic behind the law of certificates of divorce and all this stuff, the ethic behind that law is really an arc towards loving each other. Today, is Pentecost, and as we celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit... We recognize that it is the Spirit and nothing else that actually empowers us to live this way. It's the Spirit that gives us an opportunity for this new life. This message today, I think, is great news because Jesus believes that with a humble heart and His help, we can actually do this stuff. And this is a kind of life that I want to live. The crazy thing is that in first century Palestine, Caesar was in control of all that area. He made a decree that if one of your spouses, if your spouse committed adultery or did something worthy of divorce, you had to divorce them. You couldn't take them back. So if it was discovered that there was infidelity in your marriage, even if you're trying to hold it together, and people found out you would be in trouble, Caesar said you had to get a divorce. Jesus comes in saying exactly the opposite. So in Matthew 19, Jesus has a longer teaching on divorce. Do you know what Matthew 18 is? It's that long teaching on forgiveness. You know the one with the king and the slave that owes him all that money and the king uh, forgives his incredible debt, right? I don't think it's an accident that those teachings are the forgiveness one first and then a teaching about divorce. A bad divorce can be forgiven, A bad divorce, an unbiblical divorce, can be forgiven if we actually repent and agree that it is sinful, that it's a bad divorce. See, that's what confession is. It's agreeing with God that we screwed up. What I don't see condoned is a cavalier attitude about divorce between sons and daughters of the living God. I don't see that here anywhere. Just no big deal. God's grace will cover me. A couple committed to one another with God's help can endure great storms of trial and even betrayal when there's reconciliation and genuine humility in the work of reconciliation. I just want to leave us with Jesus' ultimate example. God, you know, especially in the Old Testament, often refers to Israel as this adulterous bride. And yet, this is the same God who came and died for that bride. If you're like me, these teachings on anger and lust and now divorce stir up all kinds of emotions and they confront us with our sinfulness. I'm so thankful we have a God who died for us while we're still rebels. He didn't wait for us to get it right. I'm thankful we have a God who says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm thankful that we can come right now and not only be forgiven, but have a new kind of life for all eternity. Would you pray with me? There's really nowhere else to turn to, Lord, but to cast ourselves into your hands. And I am so thankful that those hands are strong and good as much as they are righteous and just. Thank you for the gospel that you, um, you died to rescue us. You died... gave yourself so that even in our own sinfulness we could have eternal life through faith in you. Lord, I'm also grateful for the challenge that makes Shackleton's offer at an adventure look like a walk in the park. I'm thankful that you um, you don't just take care of us and pat us on the head and say, do what you can. But you see in us so much more than we we want to see, so much more than we believe we are. You see us as image bearers of you. You give us your spirit through faith. And you call us to a life that seems impossible to us. But it's a life that you say, just to live for. Thankful, Father, that you know where every one of us is at this evening. You know the ones that need lots of comfort. You know the ones that need um, conviction. You know those who are indifferent And I'm thankful that you have uh, a great plan for us. You want to make us more and more like you. Lord, we surrender afresh. Accept your forgiveness because we are sinful. And we ask for grace. This minute, this hour, this day, this year, this life to trust you, to follow you, to be developed as your apprentices. Have your way with us, Lord. Amen.